Blog Talk Radio. Uh oh, guess what day it is? Julie. Huh? Julie. Huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. Huh? What day is it, Mike? Huh? Woohoo! Listen, guess what today is? Listen, guess what today is? It's hump day. Hump day. <laughs> hump day. Hump day. <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Tom Donaldson here in the Donaldson Files. We'll be talking with Jennifer Cabrera here, and I'll have her introduce herself in a couple of uh, few minutes here. Of rationalground.com. She's been on our show along with her, with others from that organization, including Justin Hart. Uh, they talk about the coronavirus. And what I want to do, we're going to kind of do an update now. Yesterday, for those people, uh, if you were on, yes, if you listened to yesterday's show, you know, uh, I have, you know, the Lisa the Foundation I'm working with, by the way, I'm the chairman of America's PAC. I'm also with the America's Majority Foundation. And and what we did is that you know we are, we kind of conducted a, a kind of what I call a summary of everything, you know, uh, you know, so you know, data analysis. And one of the things that, you know that we came up, you know, is, is when you look at the numbers, and and I'll be at, you know again interested to see uh, some of Jennifer's thoughts on this, is no matter how you cut the cake, no matter how you do the data analysis. You're going to be hard pressed to show that you saved lives with the lockdown because there's no real statistical significant differences in deaths per capita. And like I say, what we did, we looked at this angle in four different ways. We've also had Will for Riley, the Prior Foundation, uh, do a series of studies on lockdown. And and, and but yet the one thing you can say when you look at the data is this: those states that had the least restriction did not necessarily, like Florida, have any increase in deaths per capita, but they had significant increases in GDP growth, like in the fourth quarter, and they had something anywhere between eighteen thousand to twenty-six thousand per million less people unemployed. Anywhere between four to six million people are not working. They should be working based on the lockdown. And and like I said, we review this data uh, data because no matter how you cut like I said, no matter how you cut the cake, you know, I can show you studies, you know, we've we even done our own calculation where we have some you know, some of our data will come out slightly higher per capita for red states and versus blue states. And we have studies that have done the complete opposite. When you add them all together, it's like significantly insignificant. <laughs> but not what's not insignificant is the actual economic data. And and as uh, as you know you know as I say last night, I'm not even counting the increase in suicides, drug overdoses. Chronic diseases not being trust, you know, you know, treated, and it go even further than that. Uh, as the one of the studies done by the National Economic Bureau Institute, 
where literally we're talking about 1.3 million people who either have died or would die prematurely as a result of the lockdowns and as a result of what we had done. That means at best, you only save one life for every two lives you end up losing. That was the trade-off. And I brought Jennifer here because there's a lot of things happening. There's some censorship aspects, which she just mentioned to me off the air, which we'll get more into. Uh, we're looking at, let's say, you know, certain states are surging again, and and I want to kind of get her views on this. And then basically kind of the latest uh, data that she and her crew have talked about as well. Uh, so first of all, Jennifer, why don't you kind of talk about yourself and your organization? Hello? Problem here. Let me just try this again. Uh, uh, Jennifer, are you there? We're going to take a quick, uh, I'm going to take a quick 30-second break, and we'll be right back here in just a second. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Don't forget to get your flu shots, and we'll talk about COVID vaccinations as well. Okay, Jennifer, are you there? All right, trying again. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. All right. All right. So this okay. is Jennifer Cabrera. I'm, I'm Jay Haskins Cabrera on Twitter. Um, I am. I do work with Rational Ground. I, I'm an editor there, and I, um, I have my own local news site, Electro Chronicle. So, uh, I mean, here's the thing. Okay, first of all, you, you heard my opening statements. What's your thoughts? Did I, what did I get right, and what did I, and did I get anything wrong? I think you got it mostly right. Mostly right. Okay. <laughs> so that means I got an A as opposed to an A plus. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't hear anything that was wrong. Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Yeah. The, the other thing. Yeah. One of the things. Yeah. I kind of because, like I said, you, we've been looking at this data. You know, for the past. I mean, like I say, I follow this up. Every week, you know, through the foundation, we, you know, we do an update on the death per capita, uh, and we do an update on the economic side. Just, to, uh, and we and we've been doing this out since let's say last April, so we have a pretty good, you know, handle on you know what we've been able to do and I've had, and it's just been kind of incredible to me that no matter, I mean, it's like the economic side of the equation has gotten worse for the blue states when you look at the comparison. I mean. Uh, and, and you think of the you know, the lost hours, and you know, the lost hours. You know, I guess the question would be: Is this, you know, what lessons ought to we be learning that we're not learning? And to me, the first lesson is the lockdowns were a mistake. Your thoughts? Sure, certainly. There's there's really no question about this, and and people want when you try to argue this, people want to say, oh, well, you know, if if lockdowns are a mistake, then Florida must do far better than everybody else. But that's not the way to look at it. The way to look at it is that for, for, you know, COVID deaths, Florida is pretty much right in the middle of the pack. I think we're ranked 27th or 28th out of 50 states. And in age-adjusted mortality, 
Florida, there are 40 states with worse age-adjusted mortality than Florida. We're at 41st. So it, it's not that Florida should be the best. Because it's, it's the point is that lockdowns do not make any significant positive difference, and they have costs. So as long as a state is doing as well as um, other states and, um, you know, they're doing economically better and all the kids are in school in Florida, that's a huge, huge piece of this. We have every school open for in-person instruction. Not every child is in person. Every child, every family has the option of remote, but every school is open for in-person. And so when you look at all of that, you look at the, uh, the state open for full capacity, all businesses are at full capacity, all schools are completely open. Um, you know, there's no statewide mask mandate. When you look at all of these things that we've been told are critical to stopping COVID, and then you say, well, but our results are just about the same as everybody else's. So how are these things critical? Well, you, you made a good book. Because to me, like I said, as I stated, when I look at the data, you know, to me, the sign is not uh, doing as well. The sign is uh, – you did no extra lives are being saved by having the lockdown, but there's an economic cost that goes with it that's becoming self-evident. And it seems to me that, you know, we've overlooked the economic side tremendously in its impact on the cultural and societal side. It's, it's almost like we, we've just completely ignored the economics. In, well, we know, you know the first... the economic, we know that economic impacts have long-term negative effects. It's not just today. It's not money. It is what are we doing to to these families that are digging a financial hole they may never get out of, to families whose children are digging an educational hole they will never get out of, uh, to businesses that are closing, that, that all the money that they poured into their business and it's now just gone. You can't just do that over again in most cases. These are, these are long-term effects. And, and they, they lead to things like increased drug use. They lead to increased suicides. There are known long-term effects from this sort of an economic hit. You see it in depressions. You see it in recessions. We're going to see it from this, and we deliberately did this in some cases. You can argue that there would have been an economic hit without all the government policies, and that's true. Government policies, there's no question that the government policies um, made the hit worse. Yeah, hold on a second. This uh, Jennifer will be right back here. This is Tom Donaldson, Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. You might know me, I'm 50 Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are a few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger's too close for us to ignore. So visit feedingamerica.org slash hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent, and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. Yeah, this is Tom Dawson back here on the Bachelor News Radio Network and with uh, our special guest, uh, Jennifer Cabrera with RationalGround.com. All right. You mentioned the, you know, the different, you know, let's kind of follow up on the point you just made, the cost of the economic side. It's not just business, it's not just jobs, but it goes even deeper. It's societal. And kind of review, you know, kind of follow up the thoughts you did before the break. 
Sure. Um, I mean, this isn't something I spend a ton of time on, but um, there's no question lockdowns have uh, major costs. And if you want to look into this, it, it, it gets kind of overwhelming. Um, if you go to rationalground.com and across the top, there's a menu and under resources, there's an item for lockdown. If you go there, it's just this incredibly long link, list of links of all of the you know, all of the different things that come out of lockdowns, whether it's uh, people that are going to die of other diseases that aren't diagnosed or aren't treated, starvation and food insecurity around the world, effects on children, uh, domestic and sexual abuse, economy, poverty, uh, mental health problems, suicides, drug overdoses, uh, substance abuse problems. And, you know, there's, there's links to, to, to articles on, on multiple articles on each one of these topics. And if you just want to go down a big rabbit hole on lockdowns, it's right there. Yeah, okay, here's some of yeah, Okay, it's uh, rationalground.com here under uh, resources. And, under and resources some, and then lockdowns, yeah. Lockdown, yeah. Okay, here's some of the things that you got. Uh, just to get 65% decrease in cancer screening. Uh, there's an article on 89% of breast cancer screening decline. Uh, colorectal and, and, and all of those, eight. all of those articles were early. This has only gotten worse. Yeah. So, I mean, these are like I say, they're. It, 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 like I say, I, 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 I looked at the data because, like I say, we, yeah, you know, we've like I say, we kept tabs on this, and to me, it was interesting when I started looking at you know state, you know, the data from state to states, and I, you know, in my own calculation, and this is again my own calculation is that we would have, like you say, a hit. And this has been certainly true. When you look at past pandemics, uh, the 1957 pandemic, you had a hit. Uh, the 57-58 uh, recession, there was a hit as a result pandemic. Certainly the 1918 and 1920 Spanish flu pandemic, uh, you, know, you certainly got a hit. But it's always difficult <laughs> to judge you know, what is the pandemic and what is government policies. Or is it a simple case like in our case, in the recent case here, government policies were the disasters as a result of trying to fight the uh, pandemic. And so now the other, uh, so yeah, so here, uh, let me kind of say, uh, first of all, let's just go to some of the topics here. Uh, yeah, we talked about it very briefly. I wanted to kind of discuss a little bit more. You know, why has Michigan gone one way in Texas? and Florida and other states and even the neighboring states around Michigan have gone the other way. You know, what's going on in Michigan that's causing the surges that we're not seeing in these other states? So it's a good question. And, um, you know, at, at Rational Ground, we're kind of in a, a, a all day long conversation about these sorts of things. And it, it's funny because people love to call us conspiracy theorists and, and whatever else, but I really think we spend more time engaging with the data and trying to figure out whether our theories match the data than anybody at the CDC does. I, so, so our answer for what's going on in Michigan is that it's seasonality. Now, seasonality does not mean winter, summer, fall, spring. What it means is there's a, a, a book by a guy named Hope Simpson, and he lays out uh, charts for how different uh, viruses behave in different latitudes. So um, it's, it's, if you follow on Twitter at 
Hold, H-O-L-D, to LLC. He does a lot of work on this. And he has actually kind of taken all of Hope Simpson's charts and combined them into one chart that kind of covers all of the regions in the United States. And so what you see is that the different regions fire up at different times, that, that something in that region causes a seasonal stimulus that causes the virus to heat up in that area, and then it goes up until it hits some sort of a peak from, from a, a burnout, and then it comes back down. It has done, it has followed that shape everywhere. And the, the, the fact that people like Fauci aren't talking constantly about this is just a major problem. It's, it's the, the fact that they don't understand that it everywhere, it goes up, it peaks, it comes down. They always talk like it would go up forever and we would all die if we didn't behave. And the only explanation they ever have for it coming back down is that people started behaving. That's, that's the only thing they have. They don't have any explanation for why Michigan, for example, if Michigan's um, getting bad enough right now, that's because people have stopped behaving. Just, you know, randomly. They've been doing everything fine, um, you know, for the past couple of months, and they just suddenly everybody stopped following the rules and became irresponsible, and that's what, and, and just in Michigan, nowhere else do people do this, right? That's that is the, the official explanation from our, um, you know, our elites, our betters, our, our experts. So what we believe is that if you look at last year's curve, it's very clear that this is the time of year that Michigan gets hit. We saw it exactly last year. And, in fact, Michigan peaked within days of their peak last year. Same thing. Illinois, I think, peaked within four days of last year's peak. It's happening everywhere. This is extremely predictable now that we've been through a year. And so what's happening is Michigan is firing up on a it's seasonal stimulus exactly like it did last year. However, it's getting hit much worse than surrounding states. Why? So we don't know for sure. Um, one possibility could be that Michigan has been more locked down than surrounding states, and therefore there is a lower level of herd immunity and so there's more targets for the virus. So now that they are moving around a little bit more, there more people are getting the virus. So they're getting cases that um, other regions might have gotten over the past year. So that's one theory. Maybe the problem with that, and the problem with that theory, and and pretty much all the theories, is that there is a. It, it's crazy if you look at a case map, and I think these are up on maybe the CDC. I forget where they are, but there's maps of, of cases by county. And Michigan is just red, and everybody around it is like orange, maybe. I mean, it's, it's, it stops right at the border, and there's absolutely no organic reason for that. There's no reason why those cases wouldn't cross the border into Ohio or Indiana. So it almost has to be something going on in Michigan. One theory is that they um, recently started up high school sports, and they mandate testing of all the athletes once a week. So you've got now this big pool of, of young people getting tested. Um, and then, you know, popping positives. When you do, anytime you do math testing, you're going to get a bunch of false positives. Even, and you're going to get some true positives. Um, kids can obviously get COVID. It just tends to be very mild. So that's one theory. One theory is, you know, lower level of herd immunity. Another theory is um, a different level of testing that's like state policy. There's um, other theories that we just don't have information on, like maybe their labs are doing something different. Like, we just don't know. But so the point is there's lots of theories and you have to test them against the data and we do that and the CDC does not. Yeah. Well, let's kind of follow, let's go. How about we go find this right? 
because um, I know Florida did a great job of vaccination. So, but first of all, where is Florida as far as vaccination goes? You know, getting the population vaccinated. You know, where so would you we rate are them right now? Let me pull up. Uh, I, you know, I don't look at other states that that much. I, I spend my time on Florida. Florida right now has about forty nine percent of everybody over sixteen has, has at least one dose. And ninety, you know, eighty-two percent of everybody over sixty-five has a dose. And um, so, I, you know, Florida has done extraordinarily well. What, what's going on in Florida right now is that we're kind of hitting the limit of the people that want to get vaccinated. It's just it's slowing down yeah. markedly around that fifty percent point, which I think we're kind of seeing everywhere. Yeah. Well, yeah, but yeah, that's yeah, I, yeah. So let me put it in this capacity. Uh, when do you reach herd immunity? You know, what is the def? I mean, so so basically, what's the definition of herd immunity? When somebody says herd immunity, you know, what does it mean? And with this particular virus, what is the theory of when we reach that point? Both in combination, people getting having antibodies to it, been infected, and vaccinated. Herd immunity is really defined as when a the the spread just slows trickles to almost nothing within a community. It means there's enough people that are immune that the transmission of the virus is blocked and you don't get outbreaks. So you, you're still going to get cases and you certainly still get people in and out of the communities and they might come in who's sick and they might give it to somebody who's sick. The point is that won't explode. Not that it's ever really exploded anywhere, but you're not going to get the, you know, that person gets the, their next person sick who gets the next person sick because because it, pretty early in that chain, you're going to get somebody who's immune that will stop the chain. That's, that is what herd immunity is. You've got people stopping the chain of transmission. So it's going to be, it's, it's, nobody knows what it is for this virus. Um, And because it depends on the community, how much interaction there is among people, it's going to be different in a dorm versus in a rural area. A rural area is going to have a much lower herd immunity because you just don't have the interaction between the people and you don't see as many different people on a day-to-day basis. It's going to have to be higher when everybody's getting on a subway, for example, where you're seeing just mixing with lots and lots of people every day. It'll take a higher percentage to get the herd immunity. So there's no hard and fast number. It's going to be different in every community and it's going to depend on the the characteristics of that community. Mm -hmm. All right. So eyes with vaccination. I know you know, there's some adverse events, but I have to be honest with you. I I had a sore arm, and that's about it. I don't know if you've been vaccinated yet, or have you gone through that, or if you have family member that have. And so I'm just kind of curious. You know, you know, what if you have? What what was your you know, what was your experience? I don't talk publicly about my decision about vaccination. So um, I I do know, I know the people I know who've been vaccinated. um, I'm just seeing, you know, wide range, everything from, you know, going to bed for a couple of days after the second shot to really no big deal. Um, I I think I'm seeing a lot lower reactions to the day and day um, than to the the Pfizer and Moderna. I don't know what that means, but it just seems like the day and day people just kind of feel a little bit crappy the next day and then there's nothing. And of course they're done because it's only one dose. Um, yeah. But yeah, certainly, certainly there's some some mild reactions and some possibly more serious reactions. I don't know. Vaccines yeah. are a weird thing, and, and you know, honestly, I, I would have thought that we that we would see more. So let's just take Florida since I covered that so 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 closely. 
you look at our, our vaccination rate where we started very, very early with the elderly and the elderly are, and, and certainly we've seen cases go down in the elderly, like the percentage of cases each day that are from the elderly have gone down from 18% of cases in January were elderly, and now they're like 7 or 8%. So that's a big difference. Obviously, the elderly are not getting infected as much as younger people. But even with the rate of vaccination that we've had, which has been extraordinary in Florida, we're not seeing any 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 sign in the cases that that is anything other than yeah. what we would expect from from just our seasonal stimulus and our our existing level of herd immunity. And I'm I'm really curious to see do we get to a point where vaccines just kind of make it die out? Because I I I don't know. I I believe the vaccines work, and I yeah. do think we're seeing that in the elder community. I just I really expected to see more in terms of a decrease in cases. Yeah. Hold on. Uh, this is Tom Dawson here with the Dawson Files with Jennifer Comprever. We'll be right back after these words here, the Bachelor News Radio Network. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent? One in 260,000. The odds of this born racer having 157 career top 10 finishes in NASCAR? One in 125 billion. But every driver seeks the pinnacle of their achievements. The odds of him winning both the Daytona 500 and the Brickyard 400 in the same year, one in 195 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism, one in 88. I'm NASCAR driver Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org signs. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Thank you. If you want to be a sponsor of this show, of this hour, on the on the Bachelor News Donaldson Files and the Bachelor News Radio Network, simply contact us, labachelor40 at gmail.com. Uh, send us an email. We'll send you a sales staff. Here's what you're going to get. If you're an official sponsor, you'll get a sponsorship at the first and at the end of the hour. You'll get a mention. You know, we'll have our own staff do their own, you know, myself and Coco Conscan and Tusu. We'll talk about what a great product on. You'll be allowed to be interviewed on your show to talk about uh, the, you know, your issues or your products or your company, and you get three ads as well. So that's to be a sponsor of the show and sponsor of this hour. And if you want to talk to Jennifer or myself, um, you can call at 646-929-0130, 646-929-0130. All right. Yeah, this uh, yeah. Now here's the thing. Yeah, we kind of talked about this very briefly off the air, and I wanted that you had some news uh, dealing with the vaccine board and one of its uh, members being kicked off. Uh, 
kind of that, I was not aware of this, so could you break that? Could you kind of talk about that? Sure. There's a story in the Federalist today by Joy Coleman, and she says, "So here's what happened. The, when when they had this, Martin, Dr. Martin Koldorf is at Harvard, and he has been, um, you know, for example, he was one of the the scientists that and doctors." He is a medical doctor that uh, Governor Ron DeSantis had on his roundtables. He's um, been he's part of the Great Barrington Declaration. He's very much on what we call Team Reality, and but he's also on a board that uh, that is used to approve vaccines. And this board's called ACIP. I don't know how you pronounce it. I'm going to call it ACIP, A-C-I-P. And this board advises um, the FDA on or the CDC, I guess, in this chant in this. On, on, on vaccines. And so when they decided that they might need to pause the J&J vaccine, um, this is over a week ago, they, they had a meeting, um, they presented all the information, and, and the board actually did not recommend uh, pausing it. They recommended pausing it for women under the age of 50, because that is, that is the group that seems to be having these adverse events. And so um, after when, when the CDC decided to pause the entire vaccine, Kohldorf went public and said that he didn't think it was a, a good, good decision. He said those under 50 are better off receiving the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines, even though many more patients have received those vaccines, no safety problems have been linked to them. The policy should be different for the older population for which there were no reported cases of CDSV, which is the the adverse event. To deny the J&J vaccine to older people is neither desirable nor necessary. With a pause for all ages, the total vaccine supply will decrease delaying vaccinations and increasing COVID-19 mortality. Two days later, uh, the CDC removed Koldorf from the board because he had spoken out publicly. And then two days after, four days after that, the CDC decided to unpause the J&J vaccine. In other words, the CDC, six days after, four days after removing him, six days after his statement, did what he recommended, but they removed him from the board. Well, actually, how much of that was the fact that he's been kind of a, he's a lockdown skeptic. Uh, he was a lockdown skeptic as well. You know, this play a role or just as public, going public with that decision. Because it sounds like to me, the you know the board itself said you know under the age of fifty women, you know we may have a pause. Everybody else keeps going. Public announcement, or do you think it was something more than that? It's always hard to know. Um, you know they blame it on the public announcement, and and certainly these boards often have rules about not making public statements. Could be that was enough, but also. You know, obviously, Koldorf is not popular with the in crowd now because he he doesn't agree with the groupthink on COVID. Yeah. Well, yeah, and speaking of the censorship side of the equation, I know that YouTube, and one of the things, you know, Ron DeSantis uh, is is one of the few politicians who actually reads the science. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I've been overly impressed when I've watched him do these – Roundtable because he's done quite a few in the past year, where he's invited the experts to come in, and he certainly more than holds his own. I mean, he does a pretty good job of talking about it, and you know, you know, going through the panel discussion, and he's certainly smart enough to know which questions to ask. And I guess on the first of April, they had like a review of one year, and I think it was Scott Atlas, Fordoff, uh, 
Jay, but Getty and Bobby Sharia. And, and the, yeah, Bobby Sharia. And there was the the lady from uh, Great Britain. Uh, no, what was her name? Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah, Gupta. Yeah. Yeah, Gupta. So you so uh, and it got censored. <laughs> I mean, it, it, first of all, number one, what was the rationale that YouTube gave for not you know for taking it off? YouTube said that the – I believe they said that it um, promoted information that was against CDC recommendations or something, you know, or promoted misinformation, Uh, went against CDC guidelines, you know, whatever. Because they did – they said things like there is no reason for children to wear masks in school, Um, something that should be obvious and which, by the way, the WHO agrees with. But, uh, you know, you can't say that. YouTube decided that was dangerous, so they, they pulled it down. And DeSantis um, actually had another one just to basically push back on, on that censorship. But it's, you yeah, know, that's it's a little worrisome that we can't have these discussions. Yeah, that's what the, you know, here's something I want to kind of follow up with that, because I've been making this point now for the past few months, and we've seen this almost consistently uh, not just with, uh, you know, coronavirus, but we see it in other areas as well. Uh, but the coronavirus to me is highlighting what I think is a corruption within the scientific community. Namely, if you're not on board with the narrative, we're going to keep you from being published. We're going to keep you censored. We're not, you know, the, we're going to stick the media on you. And and, and even Scientific American, I mean, if they had a whole article saying, you know, maybe this is not a good idea. But you know, it's hard for me to have – how do you have scientific debate and look at something of this novel virus when you're not even going to have discussions on it? Well, obviously, any time you have discussions where people have to bounce their ideas, defend their ideas, uh, defend their ideas against data that – you know, that goes the other direction, you're, you're going to get a better outcome. And, and we have not done that from day one on COVID. It was always, um, you know, Fauci and Burke standing up there waving their hands with a, a single model that has been wrong every single time. We now know that. We didn't know at the beginning that, was, that it was wrong. But we could, if you had let people dig into that model, they, for example, immediately people on Twitter who, who, downloaded the model and ran it, found that it, it didn't even give the same results when you ran it repeated times. That's obviously disqualifying. That disqualifies a model. You have to look at the assumptions of a model. This was never put up for examination by a community to say, hey, um, this, you know, if you change this assumption, the, the, the output is entirely different. So how, how confident are you in that assumption? Models depend on assumptions. But no, we just took this, this model, the IHME model, and the Imperial College models, both of them, and said, we need to shut down the world because these models show that we're going to have catastrophe. And, you know, Fauci and Burks just swallowed it whole, spewed it out, and said, we must panic. And so there was never any pushback. There was never anybody saying, wait, stop, are you sure about this? And, you know, maybe we should wait and see what happens. Or even once we saw that catastrophe didn't happen, you mean, remember that ISME models showed that our hospitals would be overwhelmed in two weeks and that we would have, you know, this huge number of cases and deaths by June. And it, by the way, did not predict 
the summer surge in the south. It did not predict it coming back this way. You know, you know what I'm saying? It showed it as basically a one-wave event. It was completely wrong. You have to have people sitting in a room pushing back honestly at each other, saying, hey, you know, that point, how sure of you are you of that? And, it, and you're saying this, but I have data that shows this. So how do we reconcile these two things? That is how you get good science. We don't have that anymore. What we have is groupthink that says, you know, we already know the answer and any quote unquote science that doesn't get to the same answer will be squashed. Well, that's, you know, that, that's because this bothers in so many ways because, you know, I spent 26 years in pharmaceutical industry and, and I can tell you, I've probably read enough medical and scientific journals in my life. So I know, you know, uh, so I know something about the, you know, so the debate within the scientific community, what goes on, what goes into it. And I, and I find myself, just like yourself, puzzled, because I remember in April, I, I think, what was it, John Andalonis? Because that's the, you know, did the first. UNEDs, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he did the first, and I think Jay also did a second, where they were looking at the infection fatality rate, and they were finding, oh, my God, you know, it may be about one-tenth or one-fifth of what we're talking about. and and that the number of people actually infected with mild asymptomatic was extremely high. And those numbers have since pretty much held form throughout, you know, yeah. everything else. I, you know, every, yeah, I mean, you look at that, because I remember, you know, those studies were like, oh, this is horrible methodology. This is nonsense. This is crap. Only to find out here we are a year later, those numbers have held up. And it. And I guess, you know, you know, I made this statement, you know, a few months, you know, I remember about two or three months later making the statement, says, do you crash an economy for something that's going to be two to five per thousand at worst, five per thousand at worst? Do you crash your economy? Now, I say no. And I don't plus, it's, people plus it's the old, it's old people. It's not, it's not even the workers in your economy. Yeah. This was, we, I maintain that we have known everything important that we needed to know about this virus last March. That, you know, Fauci is still going on with this. Oh, there's so much we don't know. No, we knew everything we needed to know. We knew that it was about, about the fatality rate of flu. Not exactly. But like you said, no more than two to five times the fatality rate of flu. And yeah. more importantly, we knew how age stratified the deaths were going to be. We knew it affected the elderly predominantly, meaning even that, fatality rate, whatever it is, 0 0.2 to 0 0.5, 0 0.15, whatever it is, that is a population mortality rate. And what it is, is it's very high in the elderly and extremely low in young people. That gives you a path for a policy that keeps your economy moving because the people who are out working and are healthy are at very low risk. And the people who do not work who get, uh, you know, retirement or social security and stay home anyway, who don't need to go out into the, the workforce, they're the ones we need to protect. This is a really easy problem compared to what we've done in trying to shut down our economy and make this endless arbitrary rules for what's safe and what's not safe and just none of it makes any sense. But, you know, we were doing something and it, it's all, none yeah. of it's made. It, it's just been infuriating 
Yeah. Hold on. This Tom Donaldson with Jennifer Cabrera. We'll be right back here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Go, Caleb! Come on, hit a homer, Jesse! Go, guys! Hey, did you guys know that kids who play sports earn more money when they grow up? Of course. I, I knew that. Hey, did you guys know that kids who read books have a bigger vocabulary? Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wow, Jinx. <laughs> did you guys know that friendly children have more friends? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's true. I knew that. Did you guys know that winter babies are better at music? Everyone knows that. Oh, yeah? yeah. Pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. obvious. Oh, hey, guys, did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? Huh, I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure I knew that. I'm pretty sure you didn't. Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to the Donaldson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, if you want to see a re- hear the repeat of this show and other shows, just simply go back to the BachelorNewsRadioNetwork.com, and you can hook in and listen to the show at any time at your convenience. And don't, and if you want to call in, it's 646-929-0130, 929 Zero one three zero to call in and ask your questions of Jennifer. All right, uh, let's kind of look at a little bit. Okay, you made the point in Florida that you're seeing a drop, let's say, in the elderly uh, getting sick, hospitalization, you know, those aspects. Uh, would you be? Would you? Would it be a bit? Would we also say that what surges we're seeing? Or let's say with the younger patients to begin with, uh, or do you have that data available? So it's been hard to tease this out. Um, clearly, young people are a higher percentage of cases right now um, than elderly because the elderly are vaccinated. That's, so you know we're seeing the mix of, of ages changing. So it's more young people than old people. So the the question is. Is this a problem? We get anecdotal reports that we're seeing more young people in the hospital. Is that just that old people aren't being hospitalized? So more of the people that are, so is it an actual number increase or just a change in the mix? So and it's so hard to get data on this. We're not, the, the people in Rational Ground who really look at the hospital, the HHS hospitalization data by age, so there's, there's no spikes. Um, in, in younger age hospitalizations. They're just, they're going along at the same rate they always have. It's just that now there are fewer elderly. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was just going to because it seems to me if you get a, let's say the younger the population that gets infected, you know, comparable, you're going to see, you should see less death and less hospitalization down the road if, you know, 
for you know, if I if you if I understand the science correctly. Yeah, so yeah. so yes and no. Um, yes, if if we were doing this correctly, that would be the case. The fact is still that the definition of a COVID death hasn't changed, and so anybody who dies who's had a COVID positive test um, is a COVID death. And so, and if you're in the hospital for, and you're, you die of cancer, but you got a positive COVID test at some point in your hospital stay, you're a COVID death. And so I, I think a lot of the young quote unquote COVID deaths are, are matches, what we call death certificate matches, people that die who have also somewhere on the list of having a COVID positive test. And, and right. we have no way of knowing what person, nobody will open up their death, death certificate records. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, let's kind of follow up on that point as well, because I was talking to Kevin Roach of Healthy Skeptics, and we got talking about this. Uh, I know he kind of estimated, you know, from his calculation, we're looking at approximately maybe over-reporting by 20%, which will represent, you know, we're off by 120,000, you know, 120,000 deaths over-exaggerated. And I know there have been other data higher, other data lower, you know, and I know State of Florida did their own. Did they uh, a while back did their own research? Uh, what have you know? You know, what have you know? People told you, you know, on this on this particular question. You know, what is the true COVID death? The the the, the study is way too strong a word. The reviews I've seen um, are, are are just samples and so it's very very difficult to to really get any sort of uh percentages out and you know 20 percent overshoot might that yeah that's reasonable that's as reasonable as anything else i've seen um i i will tell you my i i did have the opportunity myself to review some death certificates that are that were in the list of covid deaths in florida and and what i saw i saw i saw things like covid somebody that was coded a covid death that the top line of death were things like failure to thrive, died of old age, long, you know, end-stage renal failure, but there were COVID deaths. I saw one, um, there were several that were from falls where, you know, neck was broken or something. Um, there was one, there was one that really sticks out to me because it looked to me like the doctor was putting the test on the death certificate under protest because he wrote, um, what did he write? Positive, asymptomatic, COVID swab. So he was making the point that this person had, like, that he was forced to put the COVID test on the death certificate, but that it was asymptomatic, that there were no no COVID symptoms whatsoever. And there was another one that said COVID positive six months ago. And so there, you know, there, these are, and these are way down in part two of the death certificate. These are clearly doctors who have been told to put it on the death certificate, maybe because uh, if, if a hospital can document a COVID test, they get a 20% bump in Medicare. So, that, you know, perhaps putting on the death certificate is like another layer of evidence that they use to justify that. With, with you know, maybe maybe uh, the CMS comes in and they're they're they want it documented. And that's so this one of the pieces they look at. I don't know, but it was clear to me that doctors felt pressure to put COVID on the death certificate. All right. Well, that's, yeah, because like I said, again, I, you know, even if you go with a higher number, like you're still seeing, 
you know, anywhere between, you know, at least 450,000 if you go to 20% deaths from COVID. So it's not like, it, you know, the numbers are still pretty high regardless how you do it. But it seems to me, again, uh, it's almost as if we really don't want to have the most accurate numbers. Uh, you know, this is part of me. Maybe it's a conspiratorial side of me when dealing with government, or at least uh, that somehow or another, you know, we don't want the accurate number. You know, we're willing to exaggerate it, but that needs to be to keep the crisis going. But certainly down the road, I think one of the lessons we ought to learn is make sure we get the right numbers first uh, before we go shutting everything down. Uh, I mean, that would be lesson one. Some of the lessons you think we should learn from this? Well, certainly the not overreacting and not panicking would be one. I want to back up a little bit, though, because, you know, here's, here's how this happened. If people don't really understand this, is that, you know, when this first happened, we didn't have a ton of, you know, early March last year, we didn't have a ton of COVID tests available. Uh, people were, especially, let's say, let's take New York City. They were terrified to go to the emergency rooms. They thought they would die if they went to the emergency room, that they would catch COVID if they went to the emergency room. People were dying of heart attacks and strokes at home because they didn't want to go to emergency rooms. Um, so you had all these kind of people dying at home. And um, of course, the media did not trust President Trump and they thought he was trying to minimize it. And so they kept asking him at press conferences, you know, how, how do we know we're not undercounting COVID deaths? How do you know? So he was just, he was wanting to prove that he was taking this seriously. And of course, Debbie Burks was trying to prove that they were taking it seriously. And so they came up with this policy um, that anybody who tested positive for COVID for now, basically, it was, it was always meant to be a, you know, for now, until we can sort this out, we're going to call it a COVID death just to make sure that we're catching them all. And the problem is that that definition has not changed since then. So um, that, that was my, my first thing is it's really important to understand that this all came from the media berating Trump because they thought he wasn't taking it seriously and Trump wanting to look like he was taking it seriously to, to keep the media from, from yelling all these. So this was all pushed by the media from, from day one and all of these policies were pushed by the media. And, you know, even things like face masks continue to be pushed by the media. There's, you're not even, I don't know if, if your audience watches Tucker Carlson, but, but last night he went on this whole rant about the CDC's recent change on outdoor masking and, and he, you know, he's like, well, of course, everybody knows you don't need to mask outdoors. It's stupid to mask outdoors. And it was very notable that even Tucker is not willing to say that masks don't work. You can't say that in our national media right now. Yeah, well, yeah, but so, so we need like we, <laughs> You've never been yeah. able to say it. But, I mean, just now, you know, you'd, you'd think that somebody like Tucker would be brave enough to just throw out the whole thing. But even he can't do it. So I, I don't know what that means, but the, the, the point is we need to have vibrant national discussion about any sort of a mandate that's put in place. We have a constitution in this country. And people, you know, people like Dr. Fauci, he says flat out that your liberty is not a consideration of his. It's not. His consideration. So if I go to the doctor and I have diabetes, okay, and my doctor says, well, you know, here's what you should do. You should completely change your diet. You should eat these things, and then you should, you know, you should exercise every day, and here's what you should do. And what do most people do? They go home, and they take the meds they're given, and they don't really change anything because 
we have an ability to accept or not accept doctor's advice. Well, in this case, Fauci is the doctor. And instead of saying, nice advice, thanks, um, you know, we'll make our decisions, we're saying your advice is now law. And Fauci does not care about our liberty. He says he's, he's laser focused on COVID is the only threat out there. Anything that must be done to get rid of COVID must be done. And so everybody's just falling over and making laws that are CDC recommendations. CDC recommendations have never been laws. And this idea that we should make them laws is insane. And I think the most important thing we need to do is find again our basic freedoms and our constitution and making, have an agreement with how far the government can go in a public health emergency. That's a good point. Yeah, that's an interesting point that kind of thought because that's a very, I want you to repeat that again as an important lesson to be learned. Repeat that again. That we have a constitution. Keep in mind that there were pandemics in the age of, of the founding of America. They had pandemics. They understood what a pandemic was and how dangerous it was. And they did not put public health exceptions into our constitution. The, 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 our government has no right to put any of these restrictions on us. You know, maybe for a, you know, you, so let's say in a hurricane, we've accepted that there could be emergency orders that, you know, maybe they ask you not to travel if you don't have to, or, you know, maybe some roads get closed or that sort of thing. Or, you know, so, so we all accept short-term um, impositions on our liberty, but th the idea that, that you can have a state of emergency that goes on, and it's going to be at least 15 months, that you can have a state of emergency that impinges on basic freedoms like religious assembly, freedom of assembly, freedom of movement, freedom to, to operate your business, to, to use your property as you, um, as you wish, um, you know, the, the really, really basic freedoms um, that, that a well person cannot be treated as a sick person, that there's no due process to the assumption that, you, that everybody is, is transmitting a disease. That kind of thing must be, we, none, of that is, none of that is constitutional. And the fact that we have so few people saying that has been very, very disappointing. Well, let me ask you, let me, put, let me answer this question. The number of people willing to accept this seems pretty high to me. I just, I mean, it's, you know, the number of people you know, are like, oh, this, this is okay. Does that disappoint you? That the number of people willing it's, it's to beyond, accept it. It's beyond disappointment. It is, I mean, the, the fact that about half of America is begging for more. They freak out when, when these when the, when the rules relax at all. They freak out and beg for them to be put back. That's insane. I, I can't wrap my mind around the, the people begging to be ruled. It's ridiculous. That's not how we are in, in America. We, and, and if you talk to people like Dr. Martin Kolder, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, um, Dr. Scott Atlas, Dr. Sinestra Gupta, public health has always maintained that the way that you handle any kind of crisis is you tell people what is recommended, you t give them the information you have, and you say, you know, here's, here's the, what we think you should do, and you keep people calm and you make allow people to make responsible decisions and that is how every other pandemic in the history of america has been handled um, in 1918 there were brief 
um, you know, brief lockdowns, but I mean, we're talking a week or two. We're, we're going to be oh, well over a year on this one. It's insane. And, and people are resisting the reopening as if, as if walking out of their own house will kill them. There are people that haven't left their house for 14 months in America because they're terrified. And I don't know how we get out of this. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's, uh, and that's an interesting point because, I mean, to me, you know, people will say to me, you know, Donald Trump, you know, I would say, yeah, right, Donald Trump made one big mistake. But it's not the mistake you Fauci think. Fauci and Burke. Yeah. Fauci. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fire and Fauci would have been number one. But agreeing to a lockdown and number two, but not firing Fauci and Debbie Burke's even that. Uh, because it, I mean, because she kind of figured out very quickly, well, there goes my election chances if I keep this thing going. But I, I just find it fascinating that, you know, you had like Ron DeSantis figured this out pretty quickly. And and I'm thinking to myself, you know, how many governors chose – but then again, there's a part of me that says how many governors relish in the idea of being the savior, like an Andrew Cuomo, and I'm going to do whatever needs to be done to stop the virus, which is an impossibility. You know, it's, you know and I don't know how much that the reality is that we were given false information uh, from day one in many ways. And we were into a panic situation. Uh, and I think it's right, regrettable because, you know, the next respiratory infection season, are we going to go back and redo all this? Because uh, many of the same players are there. We, uh, we can't allow this again. We can't. Um, and, and, you know, President Trump made several big mistakes. And I, I think part of it was, was his connection to New York City and the fact that New York City got hit bad and he had friends who died. And he's apparently a bit of a germaphobe himself. And I think he, he really was afraid of this until he got it and realized that even he could survive it. And so maybe it wasn't as, as you know, bad as he had thought or, you know, not in everybody anyway. It wasn't a death sentence. So, but he, he was, you know, far too late in realizing this and, and did not stick up for the people. He was bending over to the media. He let Fauci have the reins. He made many, many mistakes. Well, yeah, the, the mistakes that he made were the mistakes that, quite frankly, was, you know, the way I put it is not, you know, everybody would say the, the mistakes he made were the mistakes that you, you know, was basically following. The opposite, the opposite of what they think, yes. The opposite of what Everybody's they think. Everybody's like, I mean, well, you know, complete. so many so many lives could have been saved if, if Trump had taken this seriously. No, um, you know, his, his mistake was, was following Fauci's advice. Hey, I'm going to stop right there because we're about at the, well, at the end of the show. Uh, Jennifer Cabrera, I want to thank you very much for being on the show. We'd love to have you back on. We thank you uh, for a very informative hour. Uh, this is Tom Donaldson saying good night from the Donaldson Files.
Trumpet, you know it's the Resistance Hour with Dr. Larry and Tom Donaldson, and I'm Dr. Larry Fidoa, your uh, co-host for the evening, and uh, tonight we have a couple of very special guests uh, the, uh, who have not, not, uh, we're not exactly in the same, uh, in the same field at all. Uh, we have, uh, the, uh, pa- pastor, uh, Greg Young, who is, uh, among other things, one of the, uh, most widely known, uh, internet, uh, host, uh, uh, uh talk show, talk show hosts. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to ask him to do a little, give us a little bit more about his very, uh, distinguished uh, career, very unusual career as well. And uh, their other guest is uh, Chief uh, Virgil Green, who is uh, Chief of Police in, in Oklahoma. And uh, and uh, welcome to both of you guys. Um, and we want to, uh, we want to uh, ask, I think we're going to start uh, with Virgil because uh, you have a very pressing uh problem to uh, deal with, and I'm going to phrase it as um, the future of, what is the future of the police, uh, uh, the law enforcement profession because of all the retirements and uh, and uh, recruitment problems and, and all the uh, negative stuff that's going on in the, by being caused by the far left in big cities. So welcome, Virgil. Uh, please uh, thank you. Tell us a little bit about, about your background to start with, and then uh, let's get busy. Okay. All right. Well, well, again, thanks for uh, inviting me on your show. Uh, I've been in law enforcement for over uh, 25 years. Uh, I've been a police chief uh, uh, over 20 uh, 20 years uh, in Oklahoma as well as in Arkansas. So I've um, been in law enforcement for a very long time. I've served uh, many uh, capacities on different uh, law enforcement boards. Um, I uh, uh, graduated from the uh, American Military University with a uh, background in criminal justice administration. Um, also, we, uh, me and my... Uh, and you ran for the, for the big yeah. office uh, here short, re- recently. Yes, sir, I did. I uh, ran for uh, sheriff in Oklahoma County, which is uh, Oklahoma County is the largest county in Oklahoma, uh, probably one of the largest counties in the United States. We've got over uh, 650-something square miles just in Oklahoma County. So uh, ran for Oklahoma County sheriff. Uh, unfortunately, it came up on the losing end of that, but, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it was a good race and um, glad to have gotten that experience. Uh, uh, in, on the other side of politics. So, um, but um, also me and uh, my uh, good friend of mine, who's the police chief in Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, we have a podcast show on the Bachelor News Radio Network called You and the Law, which airs uh, every Tuesday uh, from uh, seven uh, seven p.m. to eight p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So, we um, we talk about a lot of these same. Uh, Topics that, uh, that that you talk about, uh, we mainly focus on uh, talking with our listeners about their rights when dealing with police and how police should interact with them. And uh, just two African American men who are in the in the field of uh, of law enforcement, 
how we see it from our perspective as being um, like being in law enforcement as well as just being, uh, you know, black fathers and uh, how we see that uh, law enforcement officers should treat uh, uh, everybody. Uh, but as you know, there's been a lot of uh, tension uh, between the African-American community and law enforcement uh, for quite some time. It's, this isn't something that's new, but it's it's been something that uh, has really gained a lot of attention, especially especially after incidents like um, uh, what took place in New York with with uh, that incident and what right. took place in uh, uh, what took place in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, and so uh, unfortunately uh, we continue to see these uh, these type of incidents that happen. And um, in this past year, one of the things that has really um, taken off is where so many uh, people are, they're wanting to see a different type of law enforcement. And you've got a lot of um, uh, cities such as what's going on in Seattle, what's going on in Portland, and even even right here in the state of Oklahoma uh, where uh, city councils have uh, reallocated funds, but they've used the words of defunding the police, but they reallocated those funds for the police department and put them in other um, in other city services. And so which when you do that, it, it definitely has an impact on the police operations. So I think a lot of people don't understand that, but it significantly impacts uh, police recruiting um, and and now, as we are seeing in Seattle, where there is a uh, a shortage of police officers. Well, before before we get into the meat of the uh, of that uh, future problem, I'd like to uh, introduce uh, uh, Pastor uh, Greg Young because he's definitely going to have some. Uh, questions for you, and I want people to know and you to know okay. just who we're talking to, who's doing the talking. So, Greg, okay. um, tell us a little bit about your uh, your a little bit about your your enormous career, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and also I know that you're very concerned about this whole police uh, problem, but. Uh, uh, Give us give, give our listeners just a little bit of uh, a little bit of uh, the pastor here. Well, I'm I'm Pastor Greg Young. I I've been uh, bivocational in ministry for about 35 years. Uh, I have owned a number of businesses. I was in the Christian music business. Uh, I've had uh, several radio programs. The Chosen Generation Radio Show is the program that I do now. I've been on on air for eight years uh, doing a conservative biblical constitutional uh, conversation. I have uh, guests from uh, literally all all of the major areas from economics to law enforcement to issues having to do with uh, race. I I do a lot of things with uh, Project 21 Black Leadership Network, uh, Horace Cooper, and uh, a number of individuals over there that are on my show twice a month. Um, just started actually doing a program. Uh, one of my segments is dedicated, and we, uh, I talk with Money B, 
who is uh, the legendary rapper from Digital Underground, and uh, that Shock G just recently passed away, and actually Money is uh, on his way to be with the family there. Um, but uh, so dealing with a lot of those kinds of issues, we deal with fake news, media bias, with Dan Gaynor from Newsbusters, Rick Manning from Americans with Limited Government is on with me uh, on a regular basis. We'll have Alan Dershowitz on tomorrow uh, on the program. Uh, Match Lap was supposed to be with me today, but there was a scheduling snafu, so, uh, but he'll be back with me uh, next week, and uh, we'll have Ken Starr on next Monday. Um, you even, so even I, had me. I have had you. That's correct. I absolutely <laughs> have. Uh, and uh, and and it's and we always have great conversations. Um, and then I also I'm a veteran. Uh, I was a Russian linguist before the fall of the wall during the Cold War, and uh, so I've got a little bit of that in my background as well. And uh, Chief, it's it's great to uh, great to be on here with you, and and a pleasure to meet you, sir. Yeah, likewise, sir. Well, yeah. Uh, Tom, Tom, go ahead. We were... Well, I was about to say before we get any further because we're about to hit a break. So why don't we hit a break? And the question I want to leave uh, with Virgil and with Greg is this question. Now, because I know we've had this conversation numerous times on the network, Virgil, you and I, and uh, Dr. Larry and Keith Humphrey and others. But the point there. The, the two things I want you to kind of think about from the, for the other side of the break is this. In the case of the show, the recent trial in Minneapolis, uh, you know, we, basically we saw a bad cop get convicted, essentially. I mean, what he did. Uh, and my question would throw back to you is this. You've, you've, you, you've gone up very you, – you've made this point very repeatedly. There is that tension between the black community and the police, something that you find yourself in the middle of. And on one side of the equation, the other side, blacks like what you know, like everybody else, they want the police there to protect them. And mm-hmm. the question that I want to throw back to you when we come back from this break will be, how do we find a way to get around that that distrust that exists for very good historical reasons, while at the same well, time for for doing that protection? So yeah. Well, we're we're, we're going to have to take a little break here, and uh, you're listening. This is the Resistance Hour with Dr. Larry and Tom Donaldson on the Rats Bachelor News Radio Network. You might know me. I'm Fifty Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are, a few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger's too close for us to ignore. So visit feedinamerica.org/hunger. And find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent, and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. You're listening to the to the Resistance Hour 
with Dr. Larry and Tom Donaldson on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and we are about to hear the supreme wisdom of uh, Chief Green to uh, Tom's question about the distance between the two uh, the two groups of people. I don't know about the supreme wisdom, but I'll do uh, my best job. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, and, and I tell you, I mean, it's a great question, Tom. And uh, one of the things that we have not done a very good job of doing is building building long term relationships, especially between uh, uh, law enforcement and the black community. Uh, there's this trust that issue there, and for some reason the law enforcement industry does not understand why there is a lack of trust. Uh, You've got pockets of some agencies and some officers who are doing uh, an amazing job of building those coalitions and building those trusts. And so when things happen, they feel comfortable going to that officer or going to that agency because they know that that they have this trust with each other. And so when something bad happens, whether it be the local pastor or whether it be a local activist, they know that they can go and they can share information with the police. Um, but that's, that's not the case for, I'll probably say, maybe 70, 80% of law enforcement across the country is because for some reason there's this there's this culture issue that we've been dealing with, and the one of the issues, guys, is is that we have not the law enforcement industry has not really talked amongst themselves as to the culture of policing, where policing came from, where policing has been, and where policing is going, and that when you Something that happened in New York with Eric Garner, uh, somebody in, in, in Oklahoma may say, well, that has nothing to do with in Oklahoma, but that has something to do with in New York. Or what happened in Ferguson, uh, why is it an issue for me in Texas? Everybody sees that police officer. And so, again, it just goes back to building coalitions, building trust, because as you said, Tom, uh, you know, black people are no different than anybody else. They want safe neighborhoods. They want uh, police that they can trust. They want police that they know who will do the right thing. But when you see all these other things that happen, it it there's barriers there. Those barriers are put there. Yeah, How much do you think that getting cars instead of, uh, instead of in big cities, instead of walking the beat, do you think that had any uh, impact? Well, you know, it, it has. I think one of the things, and and it's not an issue, well, how, how can I phrase this? Because everybody has grown. But one of the things that you have seen, especially in some of your, I'm going to use Oklahoma City for an example, which is a major city. Um, when I first moved here in 1989 and I got uh in law enforcement in 1997, there were in northeast in the northeast side of Oklahoma City, northeast Oklahoma City, which is predominantly African American, uh, there had been a uh, patrol officer walking a beat. 
Uh, everybody knew him uh, up and down that uh, quarter, and uh, and so then all of a sudden that went away, uh, and they never replaced that officer uh, or officers. And so now when you put police officers inside of vehicles and they don't, the windows are not down, they don't talk to people, they don't communicate and, and uh, with, with children a whole lot other than when there is, well, we've been called to this home because there's a problem. But one of the things that I've done with my officers is, is tell them that, you know, if you're driving down the street, if you see, uh, uh, you know, some someone pulling up to their home, and it's a senior citizen or a, a single mom, and they're getting out groceries, and they're taking groceries in the house. Stop and help them. Stop and introduce yourself, and and say, hey, do you mind if I help take your groceries groceries in the home? They may look at you a little weird and say, hmm, that's never happened before. But there again, you're doing something that hasn't been done, and you just built a relationship with a single mom or with a senior citizen. But oftentimes, officers, they feel that they're too busy. I've got to go from this call to that call. Uh, but they don't take the time to uh, to show our citizens that, hey, I'm, I'm, I may have on a uniform, but I'm still a person. So I think we, we, we've got to get back to making officers understand that, just don't come around on Christmas time and hand out gift cards or, hey, we're going to take kids to Target or Walmart and we're going to do shopping with the police and all that kind of stuff. This has to be done 365 days a year. And that also means getting out of that police car. I don't, you know, hey, it, you know, and I've told my officers, I said on a, on a uh, summer day, if you see some smoke coming up out of a backyard, you know what's going on. There's a cookout. And I can tell you right now, black people are not going to be afraid to feed, to feed you. So you may, you may get you a real plate and some, some hot leeks and some sausages, but you got to get out your car and you got to talk to people. And that's what I do because people will say, well, hey, we didn't call the police. I, I'm not even in uniform. I'm just in, in a suit and tie. And uh, I'm like, hey. You guys having a cookout? Oh, yeah, Chief, come on. Come back and have a plate. And and I take my officers with me, and they walk away saying, wow, I never thought about that. So that's what we've got to get back to, guys, is being more more, uh, more human and, and getting away from the, the the mindset that we have. But you're, you're not the only one that knows this. How, how come there isn't any change? <laughs> Because, again, it goes back to the culture. Uh, you've got officers who, you know, and I'm going <clears> to <throat> explain how. So somebody is recruited. They get accepted. They go through the police academy, uh, and it's, there's a very strict uh, regimen of these are the do's, these are the don'ts. They get out of that police academy if they're fortunate enough. Then they spend another uh, six to eight weeks in field training, and they're riding with somebody who, they may have, they may be on their tenth year, or fifteenth year, or twentieth year, so they're going to learn some 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 bad habits from that from that person, and that person is is really should be more of a mentor, and, but also making sure that that officer is learning policy and procedures, 
but spending a lot of time on uh, building relationships. And so when you don't have that type of, of – when you're not put in that type of an environment, you're not going to learn that. So then when you get into your fifth year, your tenth year, uh, then you become that same field training officer. So you're going to teach the, the next recruit what you learn. So those are some of the things that we really have to get back to doing. And because if you go back and you look at the, the beat officers back in the, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, everybody knew who those officers were. And, and, uh, but now uh, our citizens don't know who our officers are. And, and now, you know, in smaller rural communities, they know who their who their police are because those police officers stay and they stay in those communities and they grew up in those communities. But and this is another issue, guys, is that when you deal with a major city, you got officers who they may live in a suburb and they may live, you know, thirty miles from the city that they work in, and so they they don't have a connection with the community, and especially when you get into areas like. Boston, Philadelphia, New York, They're, you're coming into the city to work, but you don't live in that community, so you don't, you don't really know what's going on in those, in those communities that you're patrolling. Greg, do you have uh, any, uh, any questions, or what's your thought? Well, I, I, yeah, I, I, I have a couple of, I mean, I very much agree that you know, building relationships and, and that those things are, are certainly helpful to make a difference. But if there's already a, a preconditioned distrust that is, that is taking place, there's other places that that is being fed. Our, our school systems are feeding that. Mm-hmm. Our, you know, our school systems are feeding the idea of of division. Uh, the school systems are feeding the idea that uh, that America has always been this bad place. That you know uh, that somehow our founders uh, were all racists. Uh, you know, so so when when you have generations now that have come up with that kind, frankly, disinformation, and that's what they know or what they believe is to be true, it, 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 it builds that, that suspicion. You know, I mean, you can go back. You were talking uh, about, you know, the 50s and, and the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, you know, back in those days. I mean, prior to the, the, the signing of the Civil Rights Act and prior to the uh, Lyndon Johnson's utopian vision, which was simply welfare and, and the destruction of inner city families, really, uh, and, it's, and it's carried out now. now. Now it's the destruction of all families. I mean, we have more children that are being born to single women today than we have children being born to intact families. 
and the studies are real clear that intact families provide a better opportunity for for the children that are living in those homes and in those environments. And so I, I think that there has to also at some point be some change in the trajectory of the education process. The Woodson Center, Bob Woodson, that's why one of the things that they work on is called uh, the 1776 Project. It's 1776 Unites, and and it's helping members of all communities, the black community in particular, to learn the real history of America. Because not having that, I think, creates a lot of these misconceptions. Question for you, uh, Chief. When let's take let's take a quick break and uh yes, and Greg you lead off with your question. Uh this is the resistance hour with uh, Dr. Larry and Tom Donaldson on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Go Caleb! Come on, hit a homer, Jesse. Go guys. Hey, did you guys know that kids who play sports earn more money when they grow up? Of course. I I knew that. Hey, did you guys know that kids who read books have a bigger vocabulary? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Wow, jinx. (laughs) Did you guys know that friendly children have more friends? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. That's true. I knew that. Did you guys know that winter babies are better at music? Everyone knows that. (laughs) Oh, yeah? Yeah, Pretty obvious. Yeah, Yeah. so obvious. Oh, hey, guys, did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? Huh, didn't know that. I'm pretty sure I knew that. I'm pretty sure you didn't. Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. You're listening to the Resistance Hour with uh, Dr. Larry and Tom Donaldson on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And uh, we left where uh, uh, Pastor Greg was about to give uh, Virgil the uh, central question to the entire civilization of America. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't go so far as to suggest that. But, but, but. Relative to, you know, kind of the overall, the, the labeling that seems to also, I think, be somewhat a part of this or, or part of the problem with this, is it, do you, do you believe that it might be problematic when we make a, a statement that, you know, 80 to 90% of police across the country are, are not making the right efforts or making adjustments or, or perceiving that they have a race problem? Well, 
uh, you know, I think I'm going to have to, and I'll say this, I go back to what are we doing in the police industry to do our job better? Um, and, you know, being in this profession for over 25 years, being a, uh, a police chief for uh, 22 of those years, um, you, I've seen where uh, some agencies are doing a lot of great things, and I see where some are, are just resistance to change. And, it's, and you go back and you ask yourself, is it the culture of policing? Uh, when we look at hiring practices, we look at recruiting practices, and uh, our police departments uh, looking like what they're the, the communities that they're patrolling. Um, a lot of that cannot just be put on the on the faults of, of, of police, uh, but it's it's a it's something that has to be a shared responsibility between the police and the community, and those and people that are leaders in those communities. And so, um, and I think when you 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 were made a comment about you know in the school systems, you know, um, I've, I've seen where uh, schools have utilized police officers in a way that has, that has uh, built, has not helped the trust because the police officers in the school, they have the same mentality that they're, you know, out, you know, on the street. Uh, in a patrol car, but you're in a school, you're supposed to be a school resource officer. You're supposed to be a, a resource and not someone who is necessarily an, an enforcer because you let those, uh, the principals and the school teachers, let them deal with those issues unless it becomes criminal. So that's when you talk about trust, that's another issue within the school systems where youth do not trust the police because they're seeing what's going on in the police, how the police officer is interacting with the, with them, how they're talking to them. And then you also see how disrespectful the students are to the police uh, because of the, some of the things that they have have seen that officer do or how that officer has spoke to them. So, um, Again, it has to be something that uh, the police and the community sit, uh, come together and come up with, with a better uh, solution to what we have because and when you get into inner city, inner city policing, it, it is totally different because you, you've got a, a different generation of, of, of what's going on in, in that inner city uh, and and things that have, have happened uh, previously, and you've got parents who have talked to their children and told their children how they have been treated by police. And so, you know, I think it's just one of these things, whether it's in the, it's in the deep south where you got, you know, parents or grandparents or great-grandparents who share it now with their you know, grandchildren or children how their experiences with law enforcement has been. Um, and I've always asked myself, you know, I was born in 1963, guys, and so 
I was born I'm I'm was born and raised in southeast New Mexico in a in a in a small city called Hobbs, New Mexico, which is about less than forty thousand people. Um and so uh, when you see situations where uh there's only one or two black officers, uh, and you and then when you get older you ask yourself, well, why is that? And and then you see where there are situations that qualified applicants apply but they don't get hired but then you find out here's somebody who was less qualified but they got hired and so then you you've got your your parents telling you well it's oh it's been that way ever since you know I was I was growing up and so and you wonder well why hasn't anything changed and so that's that's a question that I've even asked myself, why hasn't this industry changed? Because it is an industry, it is a business, and but it's it's a it's not a business to where we should be um, uh, punishing our residents. You, you know, to say, well, hey, you're you're a funding mechanism. If if we need to meet a certain ticket quota, then we're going to target individuals and write them. Uh, a lot of citations as we go back and we talked about what happened in Ferguson after the Ferguson uh, uh, report came out. Uh, it, it was it was just amazing how this city, the size it was, and the population of African Americans, how they were targeted, and how individuals were were overly cited, and uh, they didn't have the means to pay for traffic citations. So. It, sometimes I say we create problems that we should be finding solutions to the problem before we make it a problem. If that makes any sense, Virgil, yeah. from yeah. From, yeah. from the point of view of a you know of a social psychologist, <clears throat> it sounds to me like like the culture problem is basically not going to be solved from inside. It sounds to me like the only chance of changing it is from the outside and in that sense the these uh reformers are probably they're probably right now what the, the way they want to go about it and what they want the outcome to be i, I think we would all uh, want to be a little careful about that but if the if these law enforcement people are not if there aren't leaders in in the uh in the profession uh that want to go and make things change and, and influence other people to to start being uh, more uh, conciliatory and more community oriented it's just they're you're letting them they're letting themselves open and and laying down as a uh, as a victim for these outsiders to come in and, and take over yeah well, and I'm gonna share this with you guys uh, I just watched this uh, a video uh, yesterday that we were going to talk about on our podcast show, but we didn't have enough time to. Um, it took place in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, police officer sees a person driving down the street. They don't have a seatbelt on. Um, he uh, attempts to, to stop the vehicle. Uh, the driver continues on for maybe a couple more blocks. Um, he immediately, this officer immediately gets out the car and he points his weapon at the driver. Uh, the driver is a turns out to be as a black male. 
Um, he gets out the car. He tells him to put your hands on top of your head, put your hands behind your back. He handcuffs him. He detains him. It, now this, I'm thinking, okay, you're doing all this here because you said that he didn't have a seatbelt on. So the driver says, hey, I wanted to get somewhere where I felt safe and comfortable to actually stop. And, you know, I thought about that for a few minutes, and I said, you know, we have become an industry where we have made people fear the police. And why should people fear the police for any reason? But we have put this fear in our citizen. This isn't fear that people are just making up on their own. This gentleman was, he turned out to be a social worker in the community. He was going to a uh, a client's home. Uh, he had all of his identification on him. But guys, one of the things that really stuck out, so if this just turned out to be, so the officer said, well, can I search your car? The gentleman said, no, I don't give you consent to search. Uh, he said, well, can I get your license? He says, well, no, you can't get my license out of the car. This turned out to be this gentleman had uh, had a lot of contact with the Pensacola Police Department with their uh, administrative staff and officers. He was calling certain people by their names, and they knew who these people were. But at the end of it, guys, what he unhandcuffed him. Now, I will say we have the technology to run somebody's license, to make sure it's valid, to make sure they have insurance. So you really don't need to have a person's license physically in front of you to verify who they are or if they have a valid license because of the technology you have with a person's name. But even after he verified all that information, he continued on. But the main thing this gentleman was trying to conveyed to the officer was that I just don't feel safe. And guys, we that is a problem that is is happening in Florida, happening in Oklahoma, Texas, every state in every community minorities don't feel safe and comfortable with police officers. And even black police officers, it's not just white police officers, but predominantly it is white, but there are people who are black who don't feel comfortable with, with black police officers. So this is a, something that we have got to fix because if we don't fix it, you're going to have uh, people who get elected to their local city councils who's going to come in with a whole different perspective and be progressive and say, you know what, we're, gonna, uh, we're not going to fund your next police academy. So when you don't fund the next police academy, you may have what they may not know is that there are 20 people that's retiring from that agency. So the next year you've lost 20 police officers, but you're not going to have an academy and you may not have an academy for another two years. So that puts a strain on the services that the police department is providing, but then it also impacts the community directly because they don't have enough officers to respond to the citizens needs. Well, Tom, what what um, what do you, we we got a minute left to before our break? So, uh, yeah. well, why don't I, you yeah, tell I, us I what you're the, thinking? Well, what I'm thinking is very simply put, because I I've, I've had this conversation. You know, we and I 
we've had this conversation with Virgil and Keith, uh, and also you know with Barry Richards, who is a a retired police chief out of West Virginia. And I think many of the points that Virgil's made has been made by Maury, has been made by Keith. And it comes down to is that, you know, somewhere along the line, you've got to restore that trust that comes into play before you can have effective policing, period. I mean, you can't have – I mean, you've eventually – police reform has got to include, you know, that ability to make these kind of reforms at the same time have the best possible police because to me the number one objective is to protect and serve and if you see a crime rate that's been going up which you've seen in a lot of these cities you know going up since this has begun like minneapolis is a good example i mean you've seen a spike in crime and it and a good portion of this are in those neighborhoods dominated by people of color and we have an obligation to protect them protect their properties and their lives and so that they can live in their community safely. And, you know, that should be the objective, and whatever goes to the objective needs to be done. I'll let you guys comment on the other side uh, of the uh, of the break. This is uh, this is the Resistance Hour, Tom and Larry, and on the Bastion News Radio Network. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. You're listening to the uh, Resistance Hour with Dr. Larry and Tom Donaldson. And uh, <clears throat> why don't you uh, tell the folks uh, how they can participate in this network? Hey, here's the basic bottom line. Number one, if you want to be on the show, you know, listen to the show, you know, comment on the show, you call 646-929-0130. Now, if you want to advertise to be a sponsor of of this show, of the Donaldson Files, and you in the law with Virgil Green and Keith Humphrey, here's the deal. You go to labachelor40 at gmail.com. We'll send you out a sales team. Here's what you get to be an official sponsor, not just an advertiser, a sponsor of this particular hour. At the beginning, at the end of the hour, you'll be listed as a sponsor. Uh, Dr. Larry uh, will feature you or Virgil will feature you on their program uh, once a month for a special segment. We get free ads. And they will also give you an additional mention. So that's six times, one hour, be a sponsor show, you're going to be mentioned as well. So that's how you do it. Be a part of the uh, fastest growing network and the Bachelor News Radio Network. With Ed. Thank you, Tom. Um, uh, I think we're, we're, I'd like to change the subject a little bit right now. And uh, uh, Pastor Greg, uh, you've got, there's so many things to talk about that it we don't really have it would take us the rest of the night even to touch on most of them um but we also um uh, have this real down fundamental question that that I'd like to uh, get your thoughts on and uh, that is what do you think of the what do you think of the Biden era in American uh history where are, what do you think of what's happening 
in uh, the last hundred days, and and what do you anticipate in the next hundred days? Well, I I, I think that, that we are. Little, how's that for a little question? <laughs> <laughs> That's just a little question. That's just a little question. I I I think we're seeing a lot of very damaging things uh, that are that are happening within our country right now. Um, you know, I live in Texas, so. Um, not not the least of which is is what's happening at our border and uh and 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 the the huge increase in numbers of illegal immigrants that are coming across the border uh unaccompanied minors quote unquote but these are predominantly uh in in the ages of uh, you know 16 to 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 20 and uh and and, and so they're really not minors like someone might think about small children um there are sheriffs i i, I don't know uh chief if you're experiencing this up in oklahoma i know we are where i am in texas um and uh i know that they are as far up north as massachusetts uh they're seeing dramatic increases in uh gang activities cartel activities drugs um it, it's 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 a huge problem and and this administration's response to it seems to be uh let let's let more of them in um uh, another issue that i think is is going to be uh rising up and becoming a a significant problem for us uh is is the issue of of jihadists coming into our country and I had uh, Claire Lopez on the program today, and we were talking about, uh, you know, what what she's seeing and and the and the national security briefings that she's in, in, involved in, the people in the community that she's visiting with. Um, we have watched Islam go from a religion of peace to a political power. Dearborn has no go zones. Nobody wants to talk about them. Everybody wants to say they don't exist, but they do exist. Minneapolis has no-go zones. Uh, there are a number, several other cities across this, this country where there are no-go zones. Uh, the political powers what is, what are, is the no are go, in place. What is a no-go zone? A no-go a no zone is an area where the police in that area will not go. And American law has absolutely no no effect. It it doesn't belong. Um, there are blocks in New York. I don't know if you are aware of this, but there is a Muslim police department. And oh. and in certain areas in New York, they patrol, and they are in vehicles that look exactly like New York police vehicles and um wow. so you know we we have we have some very serious issues where where that's concerned um we've got issues right now with what's going on in our schools in 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 sex education We've got a, a what I believe is a very serious issue relative to this push for transgender 
And we've got a situation uh, right here in Texas where we've got a four-year-old boy uh, whose mom thinks that it's a good idea to give him hormones that are, that are going to basically castrate him at four years of age. Oh, my God. Wow. Wow. Um, and, and, you know, and, and this kind of indoctrination is being pushed into our schools. They're starting younger and younger and younger with these ideas of children should be allowed to question their gender. Children should be allowed to question their attractions. Little kids, there's, there's just absolutely no civil reason to allow a five-year-old to decide suddenly that, that he wants to be a girl or she wants to be a boy. They, they don't have the emotional or the mental capacity to be able to make those kinds of decisions. And when you read the heartbreaking stories of thousands of teenagers who went through these procedures and are telling their stories now about how they were encouraged by school counselors and so on to get these sex changes and, and have double mastectomies and, and so on and so on. And now they're in their early 20s and they are, they're broken. And, and they're crying out saying, why didn't someone, when I was 13 or 14 years old, say to me, hang on a minute, let's sit down, let's have some counseling, let's get you some help. Let's try to figure out the root reason that you see yourself so negatively and help you to fix the emotional traumas that you're dealing with instead of just throwing a Band-Aid on it. And it's not even a Band-Aid. This is, a, this is like a permamarker. Um. Well. And, and, and the Biden policy is, is we're going to promote this. We're going to keep pushing this. That's what H.R. 5 is about, their, their, their so-called Equality Act. Does that have anything to do with equality? It opens up the doorway. Sex trafficking is skyrocketing at our border, and it's skyrocketing across our country. And children are being victimized daily. And pedophilia now is, hey, that's, that's the next hip thing. Transgender and be a pedophile. And you're cool. That's sick. Well, then, then there's also the uh, issue about uh, energy. And, uh, and then and foreign policy is just incredible. <laughs> Foreign policy is horrific. They are, they're pushing a war. With the foreign policy that they're putting in place, they're, they're, they're going to push the Middle East right back into war. ISIS is rebuilding. Iran, you know, anybody who thinks that Iran doesn't have nuclear capabilities right now is foolish. Hasn't been listening. Well, it, 
it nowhere, and, and, and I borrow a quote from Claire from earlier today, but I've been saying this for uh, six years now, um, just because of the people that I know, the intelligence community. It, it, it doesn't take 20 years to figure out the technology to create a nuclear warhead. Not when you have North Korea, China, and Russia all helping you. It's it's insanity. You know, and and from a biblical perspective, what we... Go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, well, there's no... (laughs) But the big... Well, uh, you're right about... I mean, the, the Middle East was was affected by what I consider the greatest uh, is almost a miracle that Trump Trump was able to pull off the uh what's now called the Adam Accords but uh, Abraham Accords but uh yeah but but it seems to me that that when you talk about war unless um unless the the uh Clinton administration does something that they're not doing now they're, the they're going to have a what's that? The Biden administration. You say Clinton? Biden. I'm sorry. The Biden administration. Uh, uh, unless they do something, they're not that they're not doing now. That China is 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 getting more and more belligerent and more and more uh, audacious in terms of their tweaking of American uh, security and. At some point, I mean, if they take over, what the hell are we going to do if they take over, uh, they make a move on uh, uh, Taiwan, for example? I mean, it, it's just, it's really scary, frankly. Well, the scariest part is 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 what has now happened in our relationship with Saudi Arabia. Because remember that we have an agreement with Saudi Arabia that we will provide them with security and we will provide them with military hardware to protect themselves. And in return for that, we will remain the petrodollar. So Biden has done two things that are catastrophic. Number one, he he has repealed everything that President Trump put in place that made us energy independent, and now we are energy dependent. Refineries have shut down here because they don't have anything to refine, we're having to start importing again. That's number one. Uh, then, in addition to that, he has he has repealed all contracts with Saudi Arabia to provide them with the arms that they were guaranteed in this agreement. So that means that Saudi Arabia now has has contractually the ability to say, you know what, you violated the contract. So now we're going to shop around and find somebody else that we think should be the petrodollar. The minute that they do that, it means that the United States dollar will no longer be the international currency, period. And and the Chinese right now are courting the, the Saudis in order to take that and make the yuan the international dollar. Reserve currency. And when they do, the dollar that you have in your pocket today will be worth 
one three thousandth of what it's worth right now. Well, they've been people have been predicting that for a long. In fact, I, I, I was one of the people that was uh, really impressed with those arguments. Not not so much with the Saudi angle, but with the idea that that the uh, dollar, the dollar's uh, position as the uh, reserve currency of uh, foreign of all foreign tra- world foreign trade uh, really was what was protecting us from. Uh, our own bankruptcy, because um, otherwise, I mean, we're the only ones that can go out and print money and 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 have mean something, and that's only because of the reserve currency problem. But yeah. but with what you're talking about, has now been exacerbated by the fact that we have trillions and trillions of dollars uh, that are uh, being uh, being used, to, uh, being printed. Uh, and in, 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 that's getting top heavy. I mean, you're getting to the point where it's simply not possible for that that yeah. uh, ever to be anything else. And Tom, you, you really studied yeah. this thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, 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 uh, like I said, we got about three minutes left, and I want to make sure that both Virgil and Greg get to talk about their programs and where to listen to them. Yeah, but I'll be very cow. brief. What happened uh, be to this very hour? brief. I know. Uh, be very brief, uh, Greg. You make a very good point, and I, I'll give you one evidence of this. Is you look at Bitcoin, uh, you know, whether or not you believe in the Bitcoins or not, this is a this is another sign. When you see, you know, what you're seeing with the Bitcoins and the increase in the capitalization that's going on with the Bitcoin, this is a sign in which people are saying we don't trust the dollar. We need something else as a hedge against the collapse of the dollar possible collapse of the dollar and and that's just an example of what you're talking about greg uh now that we got that i'll tell you what yeah. Greg, both you and virgil we got about two minutes left so virgil i want you to kind of tell everybody where they can listen to both you and keith because you guys you got a great show so tell everybody about where they can listen to that great show of you well, you can listen to us every Tuesday live uh, uh, from uh, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Bachelor News Radio Network. You can listen to our rebroadcast shows at uh, thebachelornewsradionetwork.com. Uh, it's, a, it's a great show. We, uh, we, we have a, a very open com- conversation with each other and, and, and talk to our listeners about uh, law enforcement topics and social issues that's going on with between police and the, and the law enforcement in uh, uh, in the, the community, so um, and also, Doc uh, Pastor Young, we would definitely like to get you to come on our podcast show sometime. I would be honored. I was just going to tell you that I would love to have you guys come on. As a matter of fact, I'm on KDIS 99.5 Faith Talk there in Little Rock, Arkansas, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Monday through Friday. Oh wow! Great, great, awesome. Okay. Well, we'll definitely so, get uh, together. Uh, I'll get uh, the, the uh, Tom in to share my information with you, and just reach out to me through email or my cell phone, and uh, we would love to connect with you. That yeah. would be and awesome. And Greg, real quick, that would be really and neat. Greg, why don't you, yes, sir. Greg, why don't you tell everybody about your show where they can listen to it? Uh, then we'll have chosen generation. Ra- yep, chosengenerationradio.com is the best place to go to the website. 
ChosenGenerationRadio.com. Uh, up in the right-hand corner is the menu. You can find the stations we're on, podcasts, all that great information right there at ChosenGenerationRadio.com. And God bless you all. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you, all of you, for uh, for coming. And this, this hour went so fast, I, I can't believe it. But yeah, uh, definitely did. Thank you for uh, thank you for all of your uh, your uh, information and your positions. And uh, I think we have to say good night to our audience. And we uh, want you to uh, remember that America is the greatest country in the history of the world, but it needs our prayers. So God bless America.